It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The topic is China and how to absorb what some describe as industrial quantities of the most indigestible stuff, how to grapple with China's economy and its political system. Here to tell us about it is none other than George Magnus. He is an associate of the China Center at Oxford University, former chief economist for UBS, and the author of a new book entitled Red Flags, Why Xi's China is in Jeopardy. George Magnus, thank you very much for being with us. Tell us what you want people to take away from your book. Well, I think the main thing is that uh, China is facing a number of economic issues uh, which are not necessarily unique to China. Um, they're very special in the kind of China's case. But the main thing really is that since Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, there's been a very substantial shift in the way in which China is governed, uh, in what we might call its governance system. And this is not the China that we thought we knew um, that um, erupted onto the world scene, so to speak, during the last kind of 20 or 30 years. Uh, it's obviously still, and certainly is, a much more powerful China than it used to be, and it's a much richer China than it used to be. But the governance system has changed very dramatically. And, and, and what I've tried to do in the book is to set out what difference this makes to the chances of yet another transformation which China has to make if it wants to aspire to all the things that it says it wants to be. So, George, can you connect that sort of shifting governing structure in China to what we're hearing uh, with respect to the tensions between the U.S. and China? In other words, is the U.S. misplacing some of its concerns about the dominance uh, of China? And is China going to become less of a threat than, than, Chinese, than U.S. officials seem to think? Um, no, I, I kind of pitch it the other way, to be honest. I mean, I think that, um, you know, one of the remarkable transformations that China has, has done 
over the last 30 or 40 years is, you know, once upon a time, it used to be a very, um, you know, a magnetic customer for global companies and particularly for Western companies. And gradually it sort of evolved into a very feisty competitor, not just in low value goods, but increasingly in in medium skill and medium technological level goods and serv- well, not services, but certainly goods. Um, and now it's become also, uh, of course, a very feisty and very uh, considerable competitor and and adversary uh, to the United States and, and to some degree to, to the Western world as well. And I don't really see that this is going to change uh, any time in the future. And if anything, I think that the trade war, which, of course, consumes us all and it's kind of almost front page news kind of every day, um, is uh, something that we should expect to continue and perhaps to become even starker and spill over to other areas in the future because it, it does signify a kind of a, an adversarial relationship which um, at the moment neither of the two presidents of the two countries, so President Trump and President uh, Xi Jinping, you know, seem to be, you know, one of them is following an America first policy, the other is following a China first policy and that sort of dialogue that America and China used to have has um, has clearly kind of broken down, at least for the time being. Can China pursue policies for speedy growth and simultaneously reduce the risk of financial instability? Mm, now, that is the 64 trillion yuan question. Um, and the answer to that, uh, very simply, is I think is no. Um, so, um, as I think a lot of people who are watching China kind of realize and, and understand, since the end of 2016, um, China has re- embarked on a quite, quite a, um, a seriously minded um, f- course of deleveraging the financial system to try to unhook uh, the economy's dependency on debt and on credit creation. And to some degree, they have been successful, but only to a limited degree. Now that the economy is also slowing down and faltering a little bit in the wake of this deleveraging policy, but also supplemented increasingly by the consequences of uh, the tariffs and the trade um, conflict, um, we can see quite a number of bits of anecdotal evidence where uh, the government and the People's Bank of China are kind of rowing back a little bit from the intensity of this kind of deleveraging squeeze. So I think there is an unresolved conflict in China between the uh, almost the kind of the mantra that we have, you know, they have to have elevated or high rates of economic growth and the conviction that certainly many Chinese leaders have, which is that they need to reduce their dependency on debt. But I don't think they've resolved yet, um, you know, how those two incompatible objectives actually can coexist because they can't. You have to choose one or the other. Although, George, some people would say the fact that China is easing again actually prolongs this cycle and gives China uh, more time to sort of right size itself and fix some of the structural problems that it faces and avoids a hard landing. Do you agree with that? Um, not, not really. I mean, I think that the, that there is an argument that, um, you know, if you, if, if the Chinese authorities can basically just hold the line on, you know, credit creation and deleveraging for long enough, um, that, you know, that faster growth will resume. But I think that this conflates two, uh, kind of things which actually are entirely, you know, dependent on one another. The reason that China can have and has had during the last 10 years 
relatively elevated rates of growth, maybe not quite as elevated as official numbers suggest, but certainly quite high rates of growth is because of um, the because of the credit creation that's underpinning it. Once you take away that credit creation mechanism, growth will almost certainly drop off quite significantly. So this is the this is the acid test of Chinese policymaking and of Xi Jinping's uh, kind of governance, shall we say, in terms of macroeconomics over the next kind of two or three years, is will they be willing to kind of bite the bottom lip, so to speak, and allow the economy to, <clears throat> to slow down materially um, whilst this deleveraging takes place, or, uh, or will they kind of give up and, and go for growth? They still have a system of setting annual growth targets. Um, and if that were ever to uh, be abandoned, which has been mooted, uh, but it hasn't happened yet, if that were ever to be abandoned, I think we would see uh, certainly a, bi- a big shift in the way in which you know policy was being conducted in China and the, the tolerance that would be implicit for weaker economic expansion. But so far, that's not been the case. George Magnus, thank you so much for being with us. Wonderful to get your insights on this very important topic. China, of course, front and center for the entire global economy, uh, not only the U.S. with respect to the tensions. George Magnus, economist and associate at the China Center at Oxford University, also a research associate at the School of Oriental and African Studies, and formerly he was chief economist at UBS. Ongoing questions uh, are continuing about China's hacking of hardware that is used by a lot of different U.S. agencies, governmental companies, uh, as well as defense units. Matt Chiodi joins us now, Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at Redlock from Philadelphia. Matt, thank you so much for for coming back with us. Uh, There was a story yesterday that our Bloomberg Business Week reporters broke talking about additional uh, signs that China had implanted some sort of microchip to be able to hack into uh, computers for a major U.S. telecommunications company. Uh, And this was using information given by somebody who was using their name on the record. What did you make of this? So, you know, this is really, really interesting for a couple of reasons, right? First is that uh, this is the first time that we've got some indication possibly around which industry this is affecting. And the second thing, like you mentioned, now we have a known hardware security expert who seems to be backing up these claims really for the first time. And the thing that's different, right, this hack is different from what we heard about last week in that this is not an embedded chip in the motherboard, but rather directly onto the server's network port. And I think the other thing that's important to know. Wait, wait, wait. That- hold on one second. Before you continue, sure. what does that mean? What's the difference here? So the difference is that it's just from a from a skills perspective, it is it's much more difficult to do what we were talking about last week. We were talking about that really small embedded chip. In this case, we're talking about it has been reported that the server's actual port, so where it's called an Ethernet jack, where you plug a computer into the network, that the actual port was replaced with a device that now can do those remote communications. How would a company or an individual check to see whether they are affected? So, you know, this is, again, we don't know the scope of this right now. That's that's part of the challenge, right? So there is newer technology that exists, surely not that a consumer would have, right? But there's technology that exists today that utilizes x-rays 
and machine learning to compare chip designs, right? So you show it, this is what a good chip looks like, and then it will compare it. And so this type of technology can help provide assurances, but today its use is very limited. So, Matt, I want to go back to this idea that you're talking about where the uh, prior story that we were talking about had to do with implanting a chip on the motherboard. This is an easier way of accessing information going through the Ethernet port. I'm sure I'm butchering this, but I'm just wondering from your perspective, is it also easier to detect from sort of a security standpoint, uh, or does it just sort of raise the, the fear that this type of hacking and in these types of implants are all the more prevalent than anyone could ever have imagined? Surely in this case, this is something that was visibly different. I think I remember reading that it was, you know, that one is normally uh, plastic, this port, and this one was metallic. So surely this would be easier to spot just visually. But I think, you know, the thing that's really important to remember is that this is not a super micro issue, right? This is an industry-wide concern that's actually gone back for a number of years. Um, I found a report from 2017 that the Department of Defense issued. It was called the Cyber Supply Chain. And in there, they identified concerns similar to what's been reported, and they actually made a couple recommendations, right? The first was training. The second was developing new technical methods to identify malicious hardware. And the last one was new regulations that would require all defense suppliers to report hardware issues. So this, again, this is not really new. It's just the first time that the general public has been made aware of it. Matt, do you think that this will become a factor in the approval or disapproval process, the review process for U.S. companies combining with Chinese companies or Chinese foreign investment in the United States? I think it's certainly going to add a whole new level of rigor and review, right? So today, companies, they, they spend billions to secure software, but almost nothing for hardware. So definitely, it will definitely become a point of contention. But again, it's not just a super micro issue. This is an industry-wide concern. All right. So Matt, let's let's say that this is an industry-wide concern and it's evidence that China is trying to infiltrate big companies as well as uh, possibly governmental units. I'm just wondering from your perspective, uh, how, how, how do you sort of counter it on a broad level? And have you heard any, I mean, you talked about regulations, but have you heard any movement in that direction? I have not personally seen that. I haven't read anything about it, but I guarantee you this is going to spurn it. That's why I think, you know, regardless if what's being reported is 100% accurate, this news will have a positive effect in that it's going to spurn companies and governments worldwide to begin investigating the security of their hardware. All right. So uh, just let's let's actually go with that, because uh, a lot of people, I tweeted out the story and a lot of people were saying, hmm, well, all of the governmental agencies and all of the companies are denying that this is the case, When at least sure. the initial story. They're saying that there was no microchip that was implanted in their hardware. Uh, so, you know, with all of those denials, could it be that somebody is trying to get out this story, or a lot of people are, in order to prompt change, but that perhaps aren't getting the facts totally right? That's absolutely true. I mean, that could absolutely be the case. The other thing to keep in mind, right, if this really is a top-secret government investigation, no doubt each one of these companies would have received a national security letter. And if they received that national security letter, it may have very well been have one that has a non-disclosure provision, in which case they are legally prevented from even talking about it, and it would be in their best interest to stringently deny it. We don't know if that is the case, but it's certainly probable given the wide-ranging nature of this reported issue. 
If you're an individual that has responsibility for the security of a network or you head a team that has such responsibility, what kind of money are we talking about that's necessary in order to do the right kind of review? You know, it, it's really going to take, uh, in terms of investment, it's hard to say what it would be for a specific company. Certainly, it would depend upon, you know, just the scale at which that company is operating. You know, for example, my company, right, we operate all our compute capacity in, for example, the Amazon Web Services cloud. We've outsourced, in a sense, that hardware security to Amazon, and they do a phenomenal job at that. But for companies that are still operating traditional data centers, it could be a really large and very expensive effort. As I mentioned, we know that companies are spending billions of dollars on software security, but almost nothing for hardware. That's going to need to change quickly. So just in general, from your perspective, how concerned should people be about this in a broad level? I mean, I, I think that the at the consumer level, I wouldn't be that concerned right now simply because we really don't have uh, specifics around how this may affect a consumer. Now, if I am a, a business owner, if I am protecting very uh, expensive, very sensitive intellectual property, if I am a government, right, we're talking defense, I'm very concerned over this. And this is something, again, that's going to require a lot of investment. Again, I mentioned that report. This is something that's been around for a while. It's not new. It's just the first time that this has been brought to such public attention. So, you know, and the other thing I'd mention, too, is there's been a lot of academic research on this just in the last two years. So the information on how to address this is out there. It just seems like this may actually be the stimulus to finally get something done. Matt Chiodi, thanks very much for being with us. Vice President, Chief Information Security Officer for Redlock. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Tesla has been the focus for many who wish to short sell it, basically betting on its demise or at least its swoon. And certainly its shares have fallen 34% since August 7th. So it has been a pretty big swoon. But is there more to come here? Molly Smith joining us now, corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Molly, you wrote a story that I thought was really important because people can talk about the short interest on Tesla. People can talk about the business model of Tesla. But really what you need to focus on is the debt. Please explain why. Right. I mean, the debt right now is really Tesla's, uh, it should be at least, uh, their first and foremost priority right now. Uh, everyone's really been looking at this uh, $920 million maturity that's coming due in March on a convertible bond. And Tesla, um, Elon Musk in particular, has said that he plans to repay, not refinance this bond, which is pretty strong language, especially given that the company had $2.2 billion of cash as of June. So it would, in most analysts and investors' opinion, be very prudent 
to do another capital raise or try to refinance this bond instead of pay it outright. How much debt does Tesla have right now? About $11.5 billion worth. And the likelihood that they would be able to raise capital, any estimate? No, I don't think there's any indication right now that capital markets are closed to Tesla. The equity valuation is still incredibly strong. I mean, $45 billion is still an incredible sum, uh, regardless of what the debt is trading at. But even if you do look at the bonds right now, they're trading in line with other triple C rated peers, which is what these bonds are rated. They're not showing any imminent panic or distress levels. So yes, it would be expensive to go that route of an unsecured bond, but doing another convertible bond or equity or possibly secured debt, those are definitely options that have been raised. So has anyone looked at just how much interest they can take on, how much how much they can actually afford to pay out in interest payments to lure in new investors, given the fact that they're burning through cash and they need to increase their pro- profitability, their productivity. I mean, they've got a lot of needs and wants here. And can it does the math work? I haven't seen any numbers that actually put out Tesla's interest payment capacity, but that would be a really interesting stat to nail down. But that's exactly right, that there is... There are just so many needs that the company has right now between servicing the debt, between funding the operations, and are we going to finally see positive free cash flow and a profit for the first time in this company's 15-year history? Well, and just to put into perspective what we have seen in terms of price action on uh, the Tesla bonds maturing in 2025, they're currently trading at less than 84 cents in the dollar. August of last year, they were trading at more than 100 cents in the dollar. So this has been a huge swoon. People are pricing in a much bigger risk today uh, than they were a little bit more than a year ago, even though in general, triple C's have actually rallied, right? Right. And at Tesla bonds, right, they were issued at par. They have never traded at par since they were issued. These were fell right out of the gates and have been, you know, I guess uh, whenever there's, you know, some kind of event that drives the bonds down, maybe a Musk tweet or an SEC lawsuit, for example, that you've seen them go down as low as I think somewhere in the 82, 83 range, maybe, but they tend to come back into this 85 to 87 level. And that seems to be the sweet spot right now, but exactly in line with the triple C's, which like you said, yeah, are the best performing part of the high yield market right now. Who owns most of the debt? It's not institutional hands. I can tell you that every traditional asset manager who I've talked to has said they will not look at these. They want companies with proven free cash flow that they can show ability to service their debt. It's mostly short money that's in it. Uh, as we make and individual money managers exactly. like uh, Baupost Group, White Box Advisor? Uh, without naming names, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So just looking forward, let's talk about just how much debt they have coming due. And, you know, has Tesla started to have conversations with investors about what their potential uh, possibilities are for raising additional cash? From those that I have talked to, it doesn't sound that way. But Hmm. the company is still really maintaining this stance that they're going to be able to pay out this bond in March. And there's also a maturity due in November uh, on uh, convertible bonds issued by Solar City which these bonds are what we would call out of the money. Like there's a, the conversion price would be so high for Tesla to be able to convert the bonds into stock that it looks like they will have to pay the $230 million of principal outright to holders. Just as a quick reality check, does anyone who you speak to believe that Tesla really doesn't need to raise additional cash? No. 
<laughs> All right. Then. I like that, huh? No, I mean, like, but, but that, that's telling. I mean, basically that, that Elon Musk is saying we don't need to do it. And not one person who has been studying corporate finance for their lifetimes believes that that's the case. They will all tell, some will tell you, definitely. I've definitely heard people say, yes, they have the money to pay the maturities to do what they say they can do. Is that a wise move? Is that what they should be doing? No. Everyone will tell you no. Well done. Thanks very much for being here. (laughs) Molly Smith, our expert for all things related to the debt markets and, of course, uh, talking about Tesla and its debt. And you can follow Molly Smith on Twitter at Molly Smith News. Our next guest is Jim Paulson. He is the chief investment strategist for the Luthold Group, helping to manage nearly $1.5 billion based in Minneapolis. Jim, I want you to define a couple terms for us. Let's begin with toggle switch. What's a toggle switch when it comes to Wall Street? (laughs) Well, Tim, it has to do... Um, I think people are looking, you know, the question everywhere today is what yield level bites stocks? And um, I think people, when they look back historically, they go, well, let's look back historically, you know, yields had to get to 5% or whatever on the 10-year before that happens. And I think it's not about a yield level. It's about an attitude that develops. And that attitude, I think, is captured by the correlation between stocks and bonds. And when the correlation uh, is positive between the stock market and yields, which it has been most of the time in the last 20 years, what that says is that good, good news comes out and it pushes yields up. But because the attitude on Wall Street is mostly concerned about weak growth, that's good news for stocks as well. It just means we're farther away from recession or depression. Um, but occasionally, this this correlation is turned negative. That is to say that higher yields cause stock market to fall. And I think that's because good news becomes bad news for stocks. And, and it's a shift in the Wall Street attitude from worried about weak growth to worried about overheat uh, and inflation conditions. And we just actually, if you update this correlation, the 52-week trailing correlation between stock movements and yield movements, that just went negative or the toggle switch just went off as it's toggled from positive to negative correlation. And in the past, when this has gone negative, it has not been a good sign for the stock market. All right. So basically taking taking a big step back to try to get the sort of 10,000 foot picture here, uh, the Fed and other central banks suppressed rates across the board, brought down overnight rates, purchased bonds to lower longer term rates. They're stepping away from that. Rates rising, people don't have to reach for yield anymore, so people are not needing to go into equities uh, and and to riskier corporate debt. We're seeing some pretty big uh, outflows overnight, actually, some of the biggest I've ever seen. Mm. And I'm just trying to understand from from your perspective, how bad could this get, right? And what's sort of the threshold of yields at which uh, things really start to heat up in terms of losses for stocks? 
Well, you know, it's, I think it's been building for a while um, already, Lisa, in the sense that uh, yields that came up earlier this year, the yield rise paused for a while. But, you know, eventually you kind of saw defensive stocks, a lot of those stocks, utility stocks have been, have been matching the market, for example, since January 5th of this year. And uh, staple stocks have been matching since April. You know, you're seeing similar type of matching with the S&P dividend aristocrats and with low vol, the S&P low vol. And my point is, is that even though rates stopped going up for a while, defensive stocks started to outperform. The leadership of this market for the last few years, technology started to underperform. And so a lot of this has already been building. You look at the uh, narrowing of, of the market. The equally weighted S&P has been falling relative to the market cap. Uh, for example, small cap stocks have started to underperform. Um, so I, I, I think it wouldn't take a lot more for this to turn into more of not just a sell-off but a panic to, to some degree. I don't really see the conditions for a recession or bear market, but I certainly do see rising conditions for a, a really healthy correction that scares a lot of players. Jim Paulson, just to your point about the utilities, the Dow Utility Index has gained 13.5% since mid-June. Is this because investor sentiment has changed, or is there something underlying the actual corporate fundamentals that has changed? Well, or it might be both. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, I, I think it is maybe a little both, but I do think it. Uh, it's very interesting that in a year where the economy, by all accounts, has been better than it's ever been in this recovery, and that people feel very excited about conditions on Main Street and super excited about profits, that in the last you know six months or more, and, and particularly this last move to a new high we just did in the last couple of months, was led by defensive stocks. Now, what is that saying? What When defensive stocks start to outperform in a good economy, when financials no longer outperform uh, in, a, in a good economy, when raw industrial commodity prices have a 10% fall since June, what's the message of that? I think it's a message that weaker growth is coming on Main Street and the stock market's already starting to pick it up. Jim Paulson, thank you so much for being with us. Jim Paulson, Chief Investment Strategist at the Luthold Group. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.